Good morning. I'm glad you mentioned your sporting triumph, Phil. Because I was a bit worried Edward not being here, it might not got mentioned. Yeah. Knowing how, how uh, he's always up to date with the sporting news. Anyway, it's good to, uh, good to be with you this morning. We're uh, continuing our, our series uh, looking at the letter to the Hebrews, and we are turning this morning to chapter 3. I was trying to work it out that uh, I think this is about the, the eighth, seventh or eighth week, and we've done two chapters. So if we've done seven weeks on two chapters, that's three and a half weeks a chapter. So I was trying to work out, we've got 13 chapters. I think by the t- this time next year, we might be near the end. If, we, if we're lucky, if we keep going at the current rate. I was, um, I was reminded of that, uh, that, that great story of, uh, um, of, a, of a great preacher who was preaching on Hebrews chapter 12, um, for the first verse. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, and uh, the, the, the congregation turned up for the first week, and, and he spent a whole hour on therefore. And uh, one of the guys uh, couldn't make it for two weeks. He went on holiday. And so he came two weeks after, got to the fourth week. And, uh, and he said, uh, and, and they started the thing. And he started, since. <laughs> and so he turned to his neighbor and says, oh, has he had a couple of weeks off as well? I haven't missed any. And he said, no, we've had two weeks on the comma. It's <laughs> a lovely story. Anyway, let's uh, turn to... Uh, if you've got your device, or uh, the words will be up on the screen, or turn into, in your Bibles to chapter 3. I'm just going to read uh, the first six verses. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the Son over God's house, and we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Father God, I pray that you might speak to your people this morning as as we read these words, as we listen to you. We pray your spirit might move amongst us. We pray, Lord, that you'd speak into our hearts, speak into our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we've uh, been uh, looking at to this, uh, this wonderful letter to the Hebrews, um, you probably, if you hadn't noticed already, that uh, it's far from the easiest book uh, in the Bible, certainly even the easiest book in the New Testament to understand, with its frequent quotations from what somewhat seems somewhat obscure passages uh, from the Old Testament with its talk about the angels and uh, references to various mysterious characters like good old Melchizedek. 
It's not easy, necessary to follow. But on the other hand, I hope we've begun to appreciate that this is an amazing piece of writing. And I hope we'll realize that more and more. It's unique among all the Old Testament books, as we've heard, because for one thing, we, we have no idea who wrote it. There are all kinds of theories, but there's no certainty. Nobody really knows who wrote it. And we think also that it was never intended to be a letter either. We think that it actually is a sermon that has been written down. And if you read it, um, you get some sense of that. But whatever the case, the author is clearly a highly gifted teacher and a deeply caring pastor for the people whom he is speaking to. Most importantly, as we've already heard over these weeks, is that whoever he or she was, a little bit of controversy there, a little murmur, whoever he or she was, (laughs) Dan's looking at me strangely, (laughs) the writer was passionate about Jesus. You can't escape that sense of the passion that they have for Jesus. Unfortunately, it seems to be that the people he's writing to have become less and less passionate about Jesus. The evidence suggests that the letter was written sometimes in the, in the 60s, in the first century, and the likelihood is that the first recipients were, were mainly Jewish converts uh, living in Rome at the time. And Rome had a, a pop, it was quite a big city, as we know, in that, uh, in that time. It was a, the largest of the ancient cities. Um, and the good news of, of Jesus had reached there. Maybe some, um, some people, perhaps, who were there in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost would have taken the gospel back to Rome. And uh, the, the church in Rome was planted at a very early stage. And uh, they, had, uh, um, they had grown the church, but... Uh, the time had come where they were, they were suffering persecution. In AD 49, the Emperor Claudius had expelled all the Jews from Rome, and undoubtedly that would have included a number who had become Christians. And in the years that followed, there was a great deal of hostility um, towards Christians and Jews. And it reached the great climax, as we know, in the, with Emperor Nero following the great fire of Rome. And so in this context, it's not difficult to understand why so many of the believers in Rome were feeling discouraged. They were perhaps exhausted by all that was going on around them. And we get a sense that they were tempted to return to their their Jewish roots and abandon their Christian faith. And so the writer is writing to them to encourage them to bless them, to build them up. And, and his passion um, sort of just goes through all the words, all the, all the, the things that he's saying. I often, uh, when, I've, when I've read um, this letter, when I've read Hebrews, um, and I, I do encourage you to um, perhaps in the, in the coming weeks, if you get half an hour, just to pick up your Bibles and read the whole thing from start to finish. And read it out loud. As I say, it was meant to be a sermon. So it was, it was spoken out loud. And as you read it, you get this sense of this, 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 um, 
this, this person who is, is passionate about Jesus, who has a deep pers- personal and pastoral care for these people, wanting to encourage them. And so he sort of loads in all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, sometimes you get these preachers who, who get so excited that they can't get their words out sometimes. And, and this is what you get the sense of, of him wanting to make sure they, they get it all in. They understand what this is all about. And he wants to, to encourage them. They're having a rough time living for Jesus because of this persecution. They were considering turning back because things were just so difficult. It seems that they weren't going to be able to get where they wanted to be. They weren't going to be able to be the Christians they wanted to be. And so they attempted to go back to their old way of life. And so, again, as we've heard, the writer of the Hebrews, the message he wants to get across is that the truth, the truth is that turning back to the old ways, turning back to the old faith, the Jewish faith, is a tragic mistake because nothing ever comes close compared with Jesus. And that's his heart that he's wanting to get across. So, he's writing this letter to this disheartened, discouraged, disillusioned congregation. Um, in chapter 10, we, we read about, their, they, it talks about their memory of hardship, suffering and public abuse that they've suffered. They've gone through tough times. Chapter 10, verse 32, you endured a great conflict full of suffering. Chapter 12 tells us that they needed to strengthen their feeble arms and their weak knees. This was a group of people who were in need of encouragement. They were losing hope and needed help. One writer writes, a commentator writes, the most important currency a congregation has to spend is hope. And if hope gets spent down, there isn't much of anything else left. Discouragement can rob us of our hope for the future. But again, another commentator says the book of Hebrews, the letter to the Hebrews, is a book for dreamers. It's a book for visionaries. It's a sermon filled with hope that he speaks to these disheartened, discouraged, disillusioned Christians. In some ways, as we read it, it's a bit like uh, every Sunday we come along and we watch these little ones down the front here, don't we? And, uh, and they're, they're running around, enormous energy, you know, that they're like. And then you see their parents going after them. And just as they get to them, they're off again. And when we're reading the, the letters of the Hebrews, it's a bit like that. Every time you think you've got it, every time you think you've caught up with where, where he is, he goes off somewhere else, full of energy, full of hope, wanting to tell them about Jesus. So... Yeah, I'm going to get to the point in a minute, sooner or later, he says. So we've heard in the last few weeks, first the writer tells us that God spoke through the prophets of old, but more recently has spoken through Jesus. Next he focuses on the importance of angels and he says that Jesus is greater. Then he praises Moses, the great leader of the Israelites, and makes it clear that Jesus is even superior to him. So when we get to this chapter 3, just... At this point where the congregation are getting, are saying, okay, we, we get the point. It's all about Jesus. The writer then turns in the direction 
that gathers up the members of this discouraged church and carries them to a new place. Carries them to a place of understand, the need to understand God's heavenly purposes. What God has called them to and the truth of the faithfulness of Jesus. And that is their hope and that is their significance as a church. Jesus is the church's foundation. He is our hope and we can take courage but we, because we are his people. We are his household. We are his building and together we serve him. We are partners in a heavenly calling. That's what the first verse of chapter 3 says. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. It might be that, you know, we think, you know, therefore, brothers and sisters. is a sort of, um, you know, it's like a, a filler phrase, a, a throwaway line. Um, those of you know that I, I, I have a certain background, and we would often begin services saying, dearly beloved... It was a sort of catch-all phrase that sort of gathered people together. And we might get that sense of, you know, therefore holy brothers and sisters is a sort of just gathering people together. But it's not. It's saying something really important. He calls, uh, he calls the people holy. Now that's not a word that we're accustomed to using of ourselves, is it? We don't necessarily go around calling ourselves holy. Well, some of us may, but... Say, yes, David. Well, often we, we celebrate, the, we, we think the word of holy, we think of, of the great people of faith, don't we? The people who, are, who have been great Christians down the, the years. But when the New Testament writers use the word holy, they have a different sense of it. That we're not holy because of anything we do, or anything we necessarily are. We are holy because... God has claimed us for himself because Jesus has died for us on the cross because the Holy Spirit dwells within us. God has set us apart. That's what the word holy means. We are set apart for God. We are brothers and sisters who are set apart for God. We don't have to think about that for too long before we realize what a great privilege that is. Holy brothers and sisters. You, brothers and sisters, are set apart for God. The holy speaks of the, the vertical relationship. The brothers and sisters talks about the horizontal relationship. That we all have relationship with one another and that we all are set apart for God. For his purposes. We have the remarkable privilege of being called together with people of every race and language, every status, every nationality, whatever category you care to mention. We are called together Holy brothers and sisters for the purposes of God. And that is an amazing privilege. 
I had, I had the, um, again, the privilege of, of leading churches in inner city London where we had people of incredibly diverse backgrounds and cultures. And yet we were brought together, we gathered together because of our love for Jesus. We were called together as holy brothers and sisters in that place. And we share, holy brothers and sisters who share a heavenly calling. We are called for God's purposes together, set apart for Him for a heavenly purpose. Can we just imagine what that might say to this, this group of disheartened, disillusioned, discouraged Christians? You are holy brothers and sisters with a heavenly calling. What an amazing privilege. It sets perhaps all the worries, all the contradictions, all the tensions, all the disappointments, all the pain, all the setbacks, all that this life in this world has put across our path. It sets all that in a completely different context. We are holy brothers and sisters set apart for God's heavenly calling. And if we have that privilege, we also have a responsibility, responsibility to encourage one another in that as brothers and sisters. So if being called together is this privilege, the next sentence calls us to a pattern in which we are to work out that privilege. How do we do that? Fix your thoughts on Jesus. The word... um, that, um, that is translated here, fix your thoughts. In other translations, often use, they use the word consider. The word means to, to ponder, to study, to observe thoroughly, to take careful notice, to contemplate, to rivet your attention upon. I love the message. The message Bible translates it, take a good hard look at Jesus. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. If you want to know how to work out, to live out this privilege of the holy brothers and sisters with a heavenly calling, you look at Jesus. You look at the pattern. This is what these disheartened, discouraged, disillusioned Christians needed to see. They needed to see what? They needed to see Jesus. And what about Jesus? Well, that Jesus is faithful. This is the point. You look to Jesus because he is faithful. And to make his point, he compares Jesus with one of the great figures of the Old Testament. Again, Moses. Everyone would have known um, these these Hebrew Christians, they would have known about the faithfulness of, of Moses. And the Jews held Moses in such a high, exalted state. One of the great rabbis said, uh, said that Moses 
comprehended more of God than any man in the past or the future ever comprehended or will ever comprehend. They held Moses at very high. He'd, he'd been faithful to God in so many ways. In the face of threats from Pharaoh, in the face of the Red Sea, in the face of the Egyptians, in the face of the rebelliousness of his own people, Moses remained faithful to God. For 40 years, he, he led, faithfully led the people of Israel across the wilderness towards the promised land that God had promised them. This man was faithful, and yet the writer says, but Jesus is even more faithful. To these Jewish Christians, it was impossible perhaps to conceive of anyone stood closer to God than, than Moses. But here we're told Jesus is closer. He was faithful to the one, verse 2. He was faithful to one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Jesus was found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as a builder of the house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Jesus is the son. Moses is the servant. Verse 5, Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, bearing witness to what would be spoken by God in the future. But Christ is faithful as the son over God's house. If you want to compare Jesus with Moses, Jesus is more faithful. So when you fix your eyes on Jesus, he is the one. He is the faithful one. He is the pattern. He is where we can put our trust, even when things are going in a difficult way. In some ways, that verse, fix your eyes on Jesus, is, is the, the recurring theme through the whole of the, of the letter. He constantly refers to that. But, you know, like, like all good preachers, it's good to repeat yourself from time to time. I will often tell you, I was how do you think it went? She said, you repeat yourself too much. All good preachers repeat themselves. He has no problem about repeating himself, given there's more to consider about Jesus. Fix your eyes. Take a good, hard look at Jesus. And you see someone who is more faithful than anyone else you can think of. So we have... We share in this incalculable privilege of being brothers and sisters with this heavenly calling. We have, a, have the pattern in Jesus who faithfully went to the cross for us and promises to be with us to the end of time. So what do we do? Verse 6. And we are his house, if indeed we hold firmly to our confidence and the hope in which we glory. Yes, being a Christian isn't always easy. It's very often the opposite. And the stakes can be very high. For some of those early Christians, their faithfulness was costing them their lives. And we know that's not stopped, is it? 
We know that there are Christians today for whom that is reality. We can be grateful to God that while keeping the faith can be a challenge, while it can even lead people to losing friends or job or their life or whatever, we are called to be faith, to, to keep our eyes fixed on the faithful Jesus and to hold firmly, to take a firm grip to our confidence and hope. We are called to grab hold of that. When I was a kid, we used to, used to go, to, um, go to the seaside and go to the pier, and there's those, um, uh, you plan those things where, where the grabbers come down, you know, and, and they never, ever, they were fixed because they'd never ever grabbed onto anything, did they? The, the, you could never pick anything up because the, the thing was so weak. Here we are told to take a firm grip, to take a firm grasp to our confidence in this one who is faithful beyond all that we can imagine, to the hope which is our heavenly calling. We are to take a hold of, not to allow anything to cause us to let go. I was thinking about this and just praying through this passage um, and trying to think of its relevance perhaps to us. As I said, the, the Christians that this was written to were, were a group of, of disheartened, discouraged and disillusioned people. And in some sense, we think, well, maybe that's not where we're at. Although, you know, if there are, if you are disillusioned or discouraged or disheartened, I pray that God would speak to you through these words. But, and I say, perhaps that's not us. But because I like a good alliteration, what I just sense for us is in recent years, we have been, some of us have been shifted We've moved. Some of us have been sifted. Our, our faith has... has um, we've had to work some things out. Some of us have been shaken. You know, as you look around the world, our faith has been shaken. So we may not be disheartened, discouraged or disillusioned, but we have been shifted, sifted and shaken. You'll remember this, won't you? A good alliteration. So say I look around and see many of us who joined us recently. Many have gone through difficult times. And some of us facing challenges in our lives. And some of those challenges have shaken us and shaken our faith. But God wants to say to us and say to each one of us, holy brothers and sisters, Holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling. You are not here by accident. You may have just turned up here, you think, because you just turned up. You're not. You've been called. You've been called to be part of this place. You're not here by accident. And you are not unnoticed or unimportant. You are holy brother and sister. 
You are a part of God's house that he is building. You are a part of God's purpose in this place. We are holy brothers and sisters who share in the heavenly calling of what God wants to do here today in Chipping Camden. God has called us together. And so if we are shifted, sifted, shaken, (laughs) how can you remember it and I can't? The fourth S, we need to be stirred. We need to be stirred to fix our eyes on Jesus. We need to be stirred to take hold of that which God has for us. Not to just oh, pick it up, but to take hold of what God has for you. To grasp it firmly in confidence and in hope of what God is going to do amongst us. We are God's holy brothers and sisters in this place. We have a heavenly calling. Let's be stirred up to take hold of what God has for us. To grab hold of it. Then he might take us to do the work he has for us. To be the people he's called us to be. Amen.